Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. I am super excited for this little series that we got that we got cooked up for you. Um, we got Alex Connolly, the CTO of Gods Unchained, which is a non-fungible token card game built on Ethereum. Um, and essentially, this is the first part of our gaming week. We're going to ha- also follow this up with the Bitcoin side of crypto in gaming with uh, Satoshi's Games and their founder, Carlos. But in this uh, episode, we focus on how Ethereans are taking on gaming and using the blockchain, using Ethereum in order to create differentiated products. Uh, I thought this was a fun interview and very telling of how uh, Ethereans are thinking about this space. David? Yeah, it was an absolute treat having Alex on the pod to talk about Gauze Unchained. Uh, I've put in at least 10 to 15 hours into Gauze Unchained, and I was a former Hearthstone player. And so uh, this actually uh, was a pretty cool uh, episode to record just just from that perspective as a, as a player. Um, we get into a lot of different nuances about what Gauze Unchained is, how their stance is relative to Ethereum, Uh, their community, how the value of their cards is uh, subject to or not subject to the actions of the company, uh, and some other questions that we source from the community. So it was a pretty wide-ranging discussion. But before we get into the episode, I want to talk about our newest sponsor, Quantstamp. If you guys are from the Ethereum world, you should have heard of these guys by now. Quantstamp is a smart contracting auditing firm in the crypto space. Uh, They have a pretty robust resume of previous projects that they have uh, audited, including Ardai, Pool Together, the most recent Sablier, the, uh, the streaming money platform. A lot of DeFi protocols, DeFi prim- primitives have been uh, vetted by Quantstamp. And so Quantstamp is the company that is keeping DeFi secure. So any time that Christian brings up in future episodes about how DeFi is a house of cards, you can thank Quantstamp for keeping that house of cards uh, solidifying and growing and becoming stronger. So thank you, Quantstamp, for sponsoring the podcast. If you guys want to learn more about them, go to expertaudits.com. Uh, that's where you'll find all the Quantstamp information. So you can get a security audit with them at expertaudits.com. All right, on to our long-term sponsor, eToro. I can't say enough about these guys. eToro has been supporting cryptocurrency and Bitcoin since 2013. And now they are bringing their trading expertise to the United States. Their social trading platform is essentially a one-stop shop for doing whatever you want in the crypto world. Uh, You can sign up there and dollar cost average Bitcoin. You can get on there and you can practice your trading skills with a virtual um, account with $100,000 in it. So that's fake dollars, but you can test out your skills and really sharpen your skills with uh, very little risk. And then you can actually put your money on the line and track a professional trader with their copy trader feature, which essentially lets you um, follow the the active trading of any professional trader on the platform and uh, get exposure to their different trading strategies, all with one click of the mouse, super passive. If you want to check them out and their different, uh, their different, their different features, make sure to go to b.tc backslash eToro POV. Again, that is b.tc backslash eToro POV. All right, everyone. And without further ado, let's get right into it. Alex Connolly. Alex Connolly, CTO of Gods Unchained. Welcome to POV Crypto. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. So is that right? Are you CTO of Gods Unchained or is it CTO of Immutable? So I'm the CTO of Immutable uh, and we're the game studio which makes Gods Unchained. Uh, Our intention is to both release a number of uh, titles which use uh, Ethereum tokens as in-game assets and also to build a platform for other developers. We want to make it super seamless for anyone who wants to build a game which uses these real assets uh, to get that set up. Uh, And we want to be the sort of the platform and crypto expertise uh, for that paradigm. Okay, so it's a crypto-focused game platform that um, yep. probably uh, leverages the world of tokens to also re- have them represent as items in games. Is that the general foundation? That's, that's exactly it, right? Uh, our sort of view is that 
where currently most assets that exist sort of in games are just sort of columns in a database that you rent from a game developer uh, for a few months. Often you can't trade them. If you can trade them, often there are really strict restrictions on them or that they can take them away fairly unilaterally by the terms of service. What we offer is essentially those same items that people know, love and have a deep experience and connection to, uh, but we make we represent every item in our games as an Ethereum token, right? Which means full tradability, programmability, composability, et cetera. Uh, we we want to give that sort of uh, more, we, we, we describe it as having sort of a more real class of digital assets. Very cool. And so Gods Unchained is that first game that you guys are developing. And so uh, Gods Unchained is actually really close to my heart as a former Hearthstone player. Uh, can you talk about yep. uh, how Gods Unchained, the idea behind it and the design behind it uh, came to be and why you guys decided to go with the Gods Unchained route first? And maybe also explain what Gods Unchained is. Yeah. Uh, so Gods Unchained is currently our flagship title. Uh, it's a trading card game. Uh, so that means that every item in the game is a card. Those cards do diff very different things. They have uh, unique art, they have all sorts of different properties. And when you play with them in the game, they essentially cause certain things to happen, right? So if you've ever played a game like Hearthstone, similar mechanics, games like Magic the Gathering, uh, there's a whole genre out there, uh, which is based on the idea that uh, you have cards and they do things, right? Uh, and where Gods Unchained came from as an idea was essentially, uh, we were looking at uh, an industry where we think there's a great sort of opportunity for games which leverage those crypto assets, which I've already talked about, uh, to enter the space. And we're looking at, as we think gamers are, are a really great target audience for people like this, uh, for products like this, because uh, just from the outset, they're used to digital assets, they're used to digital ownership, they're used to sort of going through uh, the, the early adopters of things, so they're willing to bear with some of the uh, UX challenges, which are definitely still present in crypto, right? Uh, and then, while we're looking to combine this, we wanted to find a market where we thought there was something where in the transition from physical to digital card games, something had gone missing, right? Uh, so uh, what we thought that was, was originally with physical card games, which got really, really popular throughout the sort of 80s, 90s, 2000s, talking about Magic the Gathering, talking about Legend of the Five Rings, um, games with you know, tens of millions of players all around the world. I think the market cap of Magic cards is in the billions of dollars, right? Um, with it's a sort of a cultural phenomenon, right? Uh, but it did come with some downsides, right? So physical card games, even though they gave you that freedom, that tradability, the full ownership over the cards, you know, you could do whatever you wanted with them. You could send them to your friend. Uh, you could set them on fire. You could do whatever you want, right? Uh, when that got, that also came with some downsides, right? So you had to keep your magic cards uh, really, really well protected uh, because if they got damaged, they would lose a lot of value. Uh, it was really tricky to find matches. Uh, because you had to, to build, take your collection, uh, go and find someone else who would agree to play with the same rules. Everyone was kind of using slightly different rules. Um, and so matchmaking became an enormous challenge. Uh, all sorts of things meant that it was just really inconvenient to actually play the game, right? Uh, and people still absolutely do it. It's still a, an enormously thriving community. Uh, but what happened was game companies like Blizzard saw a market opportunity where they could do the same style of game. So still trading card games, but in a digital format, right? And so David just mentioned uh, Hearthstone, which is currently sort of the market leader in these digital uh, card games. Right? And Hearthstone, essentially, uh, they did all sorts of uh, really cool things, right, which you couldn't do with a, with a physical card game, right? They, firstly, you could play with anyone, anyone, anywhere in the world at any time, right? So you can have a global community, you have really fast matchmaking. You can do really cool mechanics uh, because computers are, ca are capable of calculating things which humans just aren't capable of. You know, uh, pick the, the perfect card from your deck. Uh, like they've, they've been able to innovate really strongly with those mechanics. But the trade-off uh, was that both because of complexity uh, and because of the technology not existing and also because of their monetization model, uh, in the transition, the tradability and ownership of cards got completely lost, right? So in Hearthstone and games like it, you can't trade your cards, uh, you don't really own them, uh, and it's a source of frustration for many people in the community, right? And what we thought was, here are these two communities uh, which are both really successful in their own right, but each seems to be missing something that the other has. And we see Gods Unchained as the middle ground between those two, uh, two sort of uh, massive titans of the industry, right? A way for people to access the convenience, the extra mechanics, uh, the simple matchmaking, uh, the complex sort of card rule sets um, of Hearthstone, right? While keeping the tradability and ownership of Magic the Gathering. And so we thought it was a natural fit. And that's where we've kind of tried to position Gods Unchained. 
So what I think is the most interesting is that this follows the same kind of progression that we've seen uh, money follow. And so money used to be cash or a bare asset in the same way that Magic the Gathering cards were physical cards that you could go to like a local meetup and trade cards for and sell them for, for money or it was a bare asset. And so you had ownership of the cards. Uh, but then there's this digital world that if you want to play in the digital realm and get all the benefits of the digital world, you have to give up certain rights. And so if we're talking about money, you have to put your money in a bank and you have to give you know, your identity to the bank and the bank controls your money. And then you get all the benefits of this digital world, but then you give up ownership of your, you don't get to be your own bank. Uh, and so now it seems like Gauze Unchained has followed the crypto path, which is now we have the best of both worlds where we have digital bearer assets and we can trade these things peer to peer. And it, it seems, it's just an interesting parallel I see as crypto has rechanged money. It seems like Gauze Unchained has kind of made the same path forward with, with uh, Gauze Unchained uh, cards. Yeah, exactly. I think there's, there's enormous parallels that you can draw from that. Um, I think you've like, I, I definitely sort of identified exactly the transition between sort of uh, convenience versus ownership uh, and how we can uh, have, and we, we believe, and I'm sure that many that yourself as two people who are very invested in the crypto ecosystem um, will also believe that there is a chance for us to have the convenience uh, that sort of centralized services can offer, right? Uh, without compromising on any of those principles of decentralization or ownership uh, and that crypto as a technology, uh, whether it's in as, as Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or as any sort of like crypto network, uh, there is a, a massive chance for us to be able to develop systems which do have those uh, better sort of user experiences and, and better uh, liquidity, uh, so to speak, uh, without compromising ownership. Alex, I have a couple of questions. Uh, first, I'd like to learn a little bit more about like the actual card and the token itself. Like, how is that generated? Are, like, are there back doors? Is there a way to play with the cards outside of your, your UI that you create and outside of your platform? Can you kind of talk about that stuff? Fantastic. So every card is recorded as a unique token on Ethereum. So the standard that we use is ERC721, which means that it's interoperable uh, with all sorts of other things, right? So you can see them in different wallets. You can trade them on different marketplaces outside of our UI, right? Uh, and what we store on chain for each card is we store the type of card that it is. So all cards have certain properties, you know, they have a certain effect, they have a certain attack and health, uh, they have a certain you know, image associated with them, et cetera. And we store uh, that. And so the, the sort of the instance level properties of each card on chain. Right? Uh, and so that means that you get composability across apps, right? So if I wanted to make uh, some sort of uh, a smart contract, which would interact with a God's Unchained card and be like, uh, I want to build uh, maybe a fungible token, uh, which wraps 10 Gods Unchained cards of a particular type, right? And I can trade that uh, for some additional value, right? So we keep those properties on chain, right? Uh, where it comes to actually using the cards in different game UIs and game contexts, right? Um, at the moment, we fully expose everything both on the blockchain and through our APIs so that other people can integrate and build on top of our systems. As far as we know, uh, no one's built a completely parallel sort of UI for Gods Unchained to be able to play with it. Right? But we've seen lots of people build, uh, build different representations of the assets, uh, community websites, et cetera, who, which have often we've had our community marketplaces are doing uh, more volume than our official marketplace at the moment. Uh, and as well as our community deck building sites are doing more deck building than our official deck building sites. Uh, one of the things that, that this decentralization over assets has also allowed to do is that um, other people can do primary sales for us. Uh, so you talked about the sort of the generation of assets before uh, what we do is we sell uh, packs of cards uh, for people to buy and we give out sort of a trustless referral fee uh, to people who refer people to those contracts. Uh, and we've had community websites set up completely independent purchase flows uh, in order to claim that referral fee, right? So the blockchain uh, for us has opened up a big world of people building interoperable websites, apps, etc., which look at the on-chain properties of the tokens. Uh, and can use those to, to build out whichever sort of suite uh, part of their, our ecosystem they want. Right, be it ownership, marketplace, etc. At the moment, no one's built a sort of a competing game UI, uh, but absolutely in the future we see uh, a, a massive world potentially opening up there. All that stuff sounds extremely interesting, especially how uh, this kind of theme of composability of being able to stack these things and uh, make it like permissionless uh, referrals and all that kind of stuff. There are definitely benefits of these automated systems. 
Um, kind of curious, like, let's say there's like a big God's ex- Unchained exchange, you know, with a lot of God's Unchained volume, and there's some sort of like hack of that exchange, um, and a lot of cards were stolen. Like, if there was outbreak from the community um, wanting to revert that or stuff like that, would that be possible? Like, what does that actually look like? Um, so we don't have the, like, what, once cards are minted, they're yours. Uh, we don't have the, the ability to unilaterally do a rewrite. Um, obviously, uh, the community could come up with its own sort of forked token if they wanted to, where they were saying, uh, this is now what we treat, treat as God's Unchained cards, etc. cetera. Uh, but from our level and in the projects that we have, we put a number of restrictions on what we are able to do, right? And those restrictions include, uh, we, after we sort of finish minting a certain set, no cards from that set can ever be created again, regardless of our intentions. Uh, we also don't have a sort of a kill switch to transfer cards uh, from users, etc. cetera. Uh, we, we can't make cards untradeable, etc. cetera. Uh, and while that does put a, a larger cost on us to get things right the first time in terms of ensuring the projects are right, um, I mean, one of the nice things about this is that most of the exchanges where you can trade God's Unchained cards are decentralized exchanges, right? So uh, we're not having uh, sort of intermediaries hold really large liquidity pools of God's Unchained cards where they could be sensitive to a hack, right? So most of that volume is flowing peer to peer. If there were such a hack, uh, then we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't really be looking to do, to do any sort of uh, reorganization. Uh, I think centralized exchanges would take on that risk themselves, uh, us as the app that's an issue I wouldn't, wouldn't be looking to intervene there. So I've bought some Gods Unchained cards with my Ether because Ether is money. Uh, and when I opened a couple of these packs, uh, a legendary card opened up and it said like one of like 732. Uh, and so yep. the, the reason why you can say that is because that's built into the smart contract to only issue a certain number of those particular cards and that you're also saying that you guys don't have a backdoor to change that number. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the way in which we distribute each individual type of card is different. So some cards are capped in terms of number, some cards are capped in terms of time, some cards are capped in terms of uh, like maybe the cumulative price uh, that all cards in that set have sold for. Uh, some cards might be uncapped uh, completely. I don't think we've done any of those yet, but uh what, what we are wanting to do is to put smart contract level restrictions on those things so that players, when they're, ma- when they're spending money, when they're buying things, they'll know that, that this, that's the rules around this asset that uh, we as the game developer aren't going to later change. Um, we think this is also not just important in terms of uh, after assets have been created, but before assets have been created. So uh, when we're looking at things like randomness, uh, we use sort of a, uh, a randomness system to determine which cards uh, get made for particular users. Uh, and it's really important to us that that randomness be decentralized, right? So we use, uh, we, we generate that on the blockchain. All the odds are completely transparent. No one can accuse us of manipulating the probabilities of cards, uh, which is important for a couple of reasons. I mean, firstly, it's important for economic sort of auditability, right? So that you know, there's no, no, it's impossible for anyone at Immutable to be cheating the system or to be introducing cards into the economy through any sort of insider trading scheme or any sort of, uh, uh, any, any abuse of power which might abuse the marketplace, right? So it's important on that level. And secondarily, it's also really important uh, from a perspective of uh, sort of more traditional games publishers um, have used increasingly, uh, uh, like predatory is a harsh word, but uh, in some cases it definitely is a, a, an apt word. Uh, there are patterns taken out on systems which re- revolve around quite complicated sort of uh, hidden uh, adjustments to and hidden randomness uh, changes to incentivize increased consumer spending, et cetera. Uh, and not only do we not do that, uh, we're able to use the blockchain to make it impossible for us to do that and to put everything out in the open for our players so they have a full view on exactly the system that, that they're interacting with and buying into at the time that, that they buy into it. When you say a new type of digital asset, can you kind of explain you know, what that means? Like, Obviously, you guys are essentially printing these assets. Um, you, know, you, yep. you can make guarantees about how, you know, how immutable the contract is that created it. Like, what, what's kind of like the end game in your mind for like these new type of assets? Is this the new art in your opinion? Like, where do you think this can go? And like, how, tr- how much trust can people have in the finiteness of this stuff, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the finiteness and the trust around things like that can be completely determined by uh, the needs of individual applications, right? Uh, you know, some, some apps might choose to, to not care about finiteness at all. 
Some apps might choose to care about it an enormous amount. Uh, we think that as an overarching principle, uh, that one of the, the new things that smart contracts allow digital asset uh, issuers and consumers to do is to put guarantees that match their desires, right? So if you see something which uh, has a hard cap and you want to uh, buy that, that's your prerogative. If you see something which doesn't have a hard cap and you still want to buy that, then that's also your prerogative, right? So we see that as like an, an app level decision. Um, I think there will be a ton of use cases. I think particularly, so you mentioned art there. I think every, everything which is uh, collectible, et cetera, and which has a primary value of sort of uh, display is something where I think as we move into a more and more of a digital world, as opposed to uh, we're spending all of our time in the physical world, I think there is a lot of opportunities for uh, what are essentially much more sort of liquid uh, digital assets uh, to be to become the predominant form of displaying physical social value, if that makes sense. I think there all the the scenario that we talked about before, where it's convenience versus sort of true ownership uh, and realness sort of trade off. I think all places where that uh, paradigm becomes apparent will be uh, an, an excellent place for digital assets uh, to become important. So I heard from, I can't remember where actually, but I heard that a couple people or maybe more than a couple have been playing Gazda Unchained. And when you win a game, you gain an experience. And at some point you gain a level and then you gain a pack. And then when you open a pack, there are some cards that are worth some amount of value. And so I've heard yep. that some people are playing this game and actually making more than the minimum wage in their country of, of residence. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, I'll talk about first the system that we had in place and then secondly, the system that we're building, right? So the system that we had in place, uh, we have essentially, we essentially ran a raffle system, right? Where you could, uh, every week, every time you got a win in the game, right? After you did a bunch of bot detection validation, uh, you earned a, a sort of a certain amount of ARC20 token. Uh, after the end of a period, those ARC20 tokens could be essentially uh, cashed in for raffle tickets and we, we drew out a bunch of valuable prizes in the game, right? Uh, what this let users do was to make a financial decision about, okay, do I care more about being in the draw to win these assets or do I care more about immediately being able to sell, right? Or, uh, which is an interesting third option, do I, care, do I think that the tokens at the moment are undervalued, so I'm going to be buying a lot of tokens in preparation of selling them later, et cetera, right? And so what we found was that uh, players who cared the most about assets, often wealthier players, were able to... Uh, buy tokens off less wealthy players, right? And turn that into you know, chances at, at more assets, right? Uh, whereas players who are often living in poorer countries, so I think there's one particular story uh, of someone who is living in Brazil, uh, who was able to, by playing Gods Unchained, essentially as if it were a full-time job, right? Playing it eight hours a day uh, on the grind, so to speak, uh, was able to make more money than they would have been able to make as a monthly minimum, minimum wage over that time in uh, playing in Brazil, right? Uh, and that's certainly uh, one of the amazing things about crypto generally is that it does allow for that sort of uh, liquidity uh, to flow between uh, countries uh, even, right? And so there are opportunities for players to interact in these virtual worlds uh, with the same sort of uh, permissionless and barrierless uh, overall nature as in just a straight up Bitcoin or Ethereum transaction. And so we were able to create an economy where players were, like the phrase that we use is like playing to earn games. Um, I think, Generally, over the last uh, 10 years, what we've found in the, in the gaming industry is uh, games used to cost uh, you know, $60, uh, $80 when you bought a, you know, a AAA title or when you bought a new Pokemon game, et cetera. Right? Some games still do, right? but the majority of the money in the industry at the moment right, uh, is in free-to-play games. Right? So free-to-play games, uh, I think last year, uh, the profit in free-to-play games was close to $90 billion. Right? Uh, that's more than music and movies put together, right? Um, this is an enormous industry, which essentially revolves around the fact you make games free to play, you sell the things uh, in the games and you incentivize people to buy them, right? Uh, well, where is it? And so over time, things have transitioned from players paying to play the games to now players are free to play the games and their uh, monetization comes from there. Uh, what we think that crypto will enable us to do is transition even further down that curve into a sort of a play to earn mechanic, right? Where now instead of you playing to pay the games, game developers will actually uh, pay you, right? Uh, and then players can make an economic decision about, okay, do I want to spend more money on the game or do I just want to provide entertainment for other players who are spending money in the game and get paid to do so? Uh, and we think that's a really uh, compelling narrative to offer our players. 
So I've been in your guys' Discord, uh, and I've become immediately humbled about how much better than everyone is at this game than me. But uh, your guys' Discord is like a small city. How did it get so big? Well, we found Discord to be an enormous sort of like uh, a really high leverage tool for us to interact with our community. Uh, it really nicely provides for both users kind of doing like one-to-one -one communication, you know, whether they're trading or they're playing and they're just having discussions. Um, as well as us sort of broadcasting out information about the game or what's going on, et cetera. Um, one of the reasons why we think it's been so successful is just because um, our users are, are really engaged with things beyond Gods Unchained we've, and we've never really restricted the discussion to just Gods Unchained, right? We, we wanted our players to spend a lot of time there and they're there discussing you know, politics or crypto or sports, et cetera, as well as talking a ton about Gods Unchained. Uh, and what we found is that our users actually have really, really interesting conversations, find ways of thinking about uh, Gods Unchained and crypto that we haven't even thought of yet. And in some ways, they even have a really awesome suggestions that we wouldn't have thought of ourselves, right? And so, uh, like lots of startups, uh, I mentioned before, lots of startups struggle with uh, not being able to get enough feedback about their products uh, and like having to go out and actively search for users who are willing to test their things and give them the feedback on it. Um, because of the success of our Discord and how many people uh, also, you know, what startups? What what startup has its users play their play their products ten hours a day, right? Um, because we have that, our our we we have so much feedback, and it's an amazing sort of self uh, self replicating cycle. Where because we are able to engage with Discord more, our Discord grows more, which provides us with more useful feedback, uh, and it's been an amazing sort of journey with that server. Have you guys published numbers with how many people are playing Gods Unchained on like a weekly or monthly basis? Uh, so we do have uh, a bunch of published numbers. Some of them are more specific. Some of them are in the aggregate and we differentiate between what counts as playing, you know, whether that's whether you play a game or whether you interact with the marketplace or whether you load up the game client, et cetera. Um, I think we've had only more than 70,000 users sign up for the game and we're looking at on a weekly to monthly basis. We have about two to 3,000 people playing uh, at peaks every day, right? And then every week, maybe double that. Right. Uh, we think that while that's an amazing audience that we've got so far, uh, in a lot of ways, we haven't really even gotten started with the marketing. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. We think that there's a lot of work for us still to do on a crypto UX side and an education perspective uh, before this game is ready for the mainstream. Uh, and part of the work that we're doing on the immutable platform, which I mentioned earlier, is trying to abstract that difficulty away for other developers. Right. Uh, essentially, there are many problems and a lot of really hard things to solve when building a blockchain game. Uh, and we've had to solve them all ourselves, right? And we are definitely still in the process of solving them. Uh, we want to solve them, get that solution out, out into the market, et cetera. And then once, once the game is ready to have, to expose all the benefits of crypto to users uh, with none of the detriments, we think that that's a time when we can really see potentially radical growth. Let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, obstacles that you had to overcome. Can you kind of talk about like, what is it like to try to build a game on a blockchain? I can think of a million things that could make it really hard. I would love to hear what your experience was. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a few key ones, right? Uh, maybe going, uh, go from the, from, from the most basic principles is lots of people who play games uh, do not have crypto, right? And when I say they don't have crypto, I don't mean that they currently don't have enough to pay for assets. I mean, they don't have a wallet, they're not KYC with an exchange, they have no way of getting access to crypto. Uh, even if they did have access to crypto, they don't understand how to use it, how to interact with things, that whole sort of UX flow at the moment, right? And there are lots of teams which are doing enormous work on turning this around, right? But if you are just a regular gamer, uh, you have to be so highly motivated um, to want to play our product, right? That you probably would have been into crypto anyway, right? So like, we, we have to do a really big job of selling you on this is exactly what it's going to be like for you. And these are all the amazing benefits, right? So there's a big barrier to entry just caused by the UX of acquiring crypto, storing crypto, sending crypto, et cetera, right? And this broadens out to things like uh, account recovery, uh, forgetting passwords, et cetera. Uh, we've had you know, users who've bought cards and then lost their, uh, their private key, et cetera. Uh, and we, we unfortunately, one of the trades of decentralization is that we can't do anything about that, right? Um, and so, that's one of the big challenges. And we're working on uh, a sort of a smart contract based wallet to help with some of those uh, onboarding issues, as well as the idea that we want our users to start interacting. Uh, we kind of see Ethereum as potentially like a, 
uh, or we see Gods Unchained and uh, generally as kind of like a, an onboarding flow onto crypto, right? Where people can come on, they can see the benefits of tradability, of openness, of liquidity, etc., uh, without having to set up all the crypto things beforehand, right? Then let's say that they've played, they've earned a card, which is you know worth two or three dollars. They've sold that to someone else through our marketplace. They've got crypto in their wallet for the first time ever, right? They can then go out into the crypto ecosystem more broadly and, and begin to interact with things which might be like uh, slightly less intuitive to them, right? But which might provide just as much value, right? So that's kind of one of the big challenges. Right? And you can, if you have any questions there, you might want to jump in. So maybe the next big challenge uh, is gas, right? So Ethereum, um, obviously has had some capacity constraints over the last uh, couple of years, right? Uh, and we found that to be a, a really interesting challenge for us. So when we launched the Gods of Chain presale, uh, this was about the time, uh, I think it's now referred to as sort of the F-Coin spam saga, uh, where there was an exchange who was promoting themselves by essentially paying uh, to fully use up Ethereum's capacity, right? Um, and I mean, it kind of worked. We've all heard of them, but it was costing them you know, millions and millions of dollars a day. Tens of millions of dollars a day, probably, right? Uh, but what it meant was that Ethereum as a network was effectively unusable, right? So to buy a $2 pack of cards, it would have cost you like $200 at one point, right? Uh, because of the computational and storage cost of calculating the random cards, distributing to the users, and saving all that data on chain, right? Uh, at that time, we were able to come up with, uh, and you can see there are some articles that we've written about this process, which we called sort of activation, which were just a bunch of optimizations. Uh, segregating different bits of this flow to try to make it, it work for our users, right? And we did a, a reasonable job of achieving that, right? Uh, but that lost us some composability uh, when it came to relating to other apps. So just recently, uh, we did a big sort of migration of cards to essentially kickstart the marketplace uh, to get everything into the right format, etc. Um, and we had to essentially do a lot of really innovative work to make that happen, right? So that was uh, creating a completely new technique for storing NFTs on chain, uh, complying to the same uh, C721 interface, uh, but allocating storage in a substantially different way, uh, storing each card uh, in, a, in a really refined and compressed format so that we were able to still preserve that data. Right? Uh, and so to give you a little bit of context about the numbers I'm talking about here, Gosling Chain currently has about 7 million uh, NFTs uh, on chain. Right? Uh, so uh, CryptoKitties back in the day, and they have a, a number of extra gas costs involving breeding and sort of the, the, the bid market me uh, mechanism that was kind of implicit there. Uh, but there are about 1.8 million CryptoKitties in the world, right? And all NFTs, which are not Gods Unchained, put together, right? You're looking at about two and a half million, right? So we essentially, Gods Unchained currently is three times larger in terms of the tokens that it's created than every other Ethereum game put together. Right. And we had to mint those tokens in about a week. Right. Uh, and so we had to create some fundamentally innovative techniques uh, to do that uh, and also contend against. And that required quite deep Ethereum knowledge, et cetera, uh, which means that, uh, that that sort of challenge is quite inaccessible to traditional game studios, people without that knowledge. Uh, and we want to try to make that a lot easier for them. Right. So to kind of reword what you said, uh, Gauss Unchained cards are classic. ERC 721s, just like CryptoKitties, but in order to be able yeah. to execute the amount of transactions that or state changes that you needed in Ethereum, it was just going to be prohibitive. And we saw what happened when CryptoKitties uh, launched. It, it clogged the network because we just didn't know as much as we know today. And so you guys knew because of CryptoKitties that this was not going to work, I probably financially because it was going to cost a bunch of Ether and because it was just going to clog the network because that's what CryptoKitties did and you guys are three times, four times bigger. And so what you're saying is that you yep. guys did some cool Ethereum magic and it sacrificed a little bit of composability, but it generated a ton of scale. Is that, is that what you guys, is that a, an accurate way to summarize it? Yeah, so with, uh, with, a, with a couple of, uh, of refinements, um, I think in the end, we were able to sacrifice no composability. Um, so uh, our initial solution did sacrifice it and we had to come up with a bunch of uh, really clever ways of ensuring that we were able to get that scale without sacrificing it. And so we, we got there in the end. Um, uh, and I think just generally, like uh, just to, to reflect on kind of the scale of these things um, with a traditional sort of NFT creation process, right? Uh, activating or sorry, 
essentially minting all of those gods on chain cards uh, would have used about 100% of Ethereum's capacity uh, for about a month, right? Uh, and so you're looking there, if you're you know, trying to occupy that capacity, if you spread that out over a few months, it'll be cheaper. You try to do it all in one month, it'll cost you, you know, 15, maybe 20 million, right? Uh, and you're delegating that cost to players in a lot of cases, which we didn't find, uh, like which we didn't think would lead to, the, to a successful marketplace or a digital asset class if you're asking players to bear that cost up front. Alex, I was going to ask, you know, this kind of really lends into one of my biggest skepticisms of like blockchain games and stuff like that or NFTs um, on the blockchain is when I, when I think of a blockchain, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's Ethereum, like if these things are going to have significant monetary use cases, like I just feel like non-monetary use cases are going to easily get priced out. Um, even if, you know, all the, you know, the dream of Ethereum 2 is reality, I, I still find it difficult to think that unless these things are like such mainstream, big time collector items that people are going to put money to moving them, like I find that it's going to be difficult to to move it around on chain and mint them and all these, you know, requirements that happen on chain. Uh, what's your thoughts on, you know, how scalable this is into the future? Yeah, I mean, so obviously uh, scaling is a huge challenge for blockchains generally, right? Uh, and that's scaling, not just in the amount of, uh, and I think you raised an excellent point there, which is that scaling is not just about how many, particularly for Ethereum, right? Which finds itself as an application uh, sort of network, right? Um, scaling is not just about the number of transactions that get processed per second. It's also about the overall network capacity to do more complicated transitions, right? Uh, and so that, and absolutely, if things are being completely dominated by uh, financial applications, et cetera, or we're doing visa scale in terms of TPS, or we're trying to go bigger than that and do the whole world in terms of straight transitions, right? Obviously, that creates a market for which use case is able to outcompete the other use cases, right? Um, and so we think that NFTs are like, so I guess I have two answers here. Like, firstly, that we think that NFTs do have some properties which make them uh, a good candidate here, right? In terms of being able to compete with uh, more traditional financial applications for essentially, uh, for what, what we're talking about here is uh, like for network capacity, right? So if you're competing against uh, lots and lots of people trying to transfer Ethereum on, on the network and they are completely clogging it up, then you're not gonna be able to do more complicated transitions, right? Uh, we think that NFTs have a good uh, way in here because obviously you can have a lot of value stored in a single NFT, right? Uh, and you additionally can use NFTs uh, as components in that financial ecosystem. And so as long as the demand is there, right, uh, there will be pricing there. But uh, on the other hand, we don't want to rely on that, right? So obviously, particularly for smaller games, people who we might want to integrate into our platform, if they're going to have to rely on massively competing on fee levels uh, with more mainstream applications, particularly in the short term, obviously in the long run, if eventually capacity is able to be eliminated as a problem, um, I'm, like I, we probably shouldn't get too deep into how like composability will work on ETH2, uh, and that, that will be its own sort of set of issues, right? Uh, but particularly in the, in the long term, in the short term, where capacity will be under significant constraints as we head into to next year, uh, we're exploring a number of sort of, uh, of options for essentially, what we, what we want to use the blockchain for is uh, for resolving disputes between players about ownership of cards and ensuring that all the properties that I've just mentioned are able to happen, right? Uh, we are exploring, uh, using uh, zero knowledge proofs, uh, using a, a number of sort of off-chain uh, standards for handling most of the capacity uh, that, that we see like these assets require, right? And then settling on chain where there are disputes. Um, over time, I think it's likely that more and more of not just the NFT ecosystem, but the blockchain in general will uh, fall into the, uh, where, where things are completely sort of unarguable uh, and where things are undisputed between the parties, right? things will continue to happen off-chain, uh, whereas finally reverting back onto chain as a dispute settlement layer, et cetera, will become an increasingly common pattern. And we see NFTs fitting into that. So I'd like to talk about how Gods Unchained may or may not be incorporated into the whole um, rest of Ethereum. Uh, and so mm -hmm. uh, if, if you have been following uh, my company, Realty, we put our centralized uh, tokens that have a property behind them inside of Uniswap in order to open up uh, trading and liquidity for, for our real estate. Uh, and so 
Yeah. Uh, people have been talking about this, you know, mega futuristic version of Ethereum where there are these like super valuable NFTs that are in, that are for games or they're for real estate or they're for whatever. And they can do all and leverage all these powers of Ethereum. And so have you guys thought about like what happens if MakerDAO accepts uh, God's Unchained uh, cards as collateral? Or have you like had these conversations about like what happens when NFTs uh, specifically Gaza Unchained NFTs become like decently liquid collateral? Like what happens then? Yeah, I mean, so uh, we, we've had that as a goal kind of from our start and we've we've been in contact with, uh, you know, Maker, with Compound, uh, with Dharma, et cetera, about finding ways to like, we, we see, we, we want users to be able to do uh, essentially whatever they want with their assets, right? Um, obviously in the short term, you still have problems, you know, relating to liquidity or relating to, uh, how challenging it can be to price assets or potentially like, you know, uh, not as much of a problem at the moment, but in the future, variability and uh, fluctuation in asset valuations, et cetera, um, as to whether they'll make good collateral, right? But we certainly think that over the long term, particularly as we build up a track record of like these cards having, uh, you know, some cards having quite a stable value over a long period of time or sort of monotonically increasing. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which, uh, I mean, just in the same way that in, in the real world, uh, or in, the, in the real world, by, by that, I mean the traditional sort of uh, centralized institutions, right? You, you see patterns where what are essentially uh, non-fungible goods, right? Whether that's real estate, whether that's, uh, you know, derivatives, et cetera, uh, where there are opportunities uh, for those non-fungible goods to become used as collateral in other financial tra transactions, right? Uh, and we see that, over time, exactly the same sort of ecosystem will develop uh, on-chain as it has off-chain. Uh, and so one of the reasons that we're quite interested in composability as a concept, um, as well as uh, the things that I've just mentioned uh, to Christian about like trying to balance scaling with composability uh, will be really important is so that we can plug into DeFi primitives, we can plug into the uh, sort of the applications haven't even been built yet, uh, which will provide both uh, I mean, we hope that there'll be value additive to our tokens, et cetera. Uh, and we also think that it will enable users to be able to like actually use these uh, tokens more, more substantively and more deeply in their everyday lives. So Christian, unless you have any other questions, there are some questions I've collected from some of the community members in the Ethereum world I'd like to, to go through. Yeah, I mean, I think you should, you should talk about those things. The only thing I would add on is like, what I just wanted to like more deeply understand, like, what do you think that these kind of tokens printed by your company will be worth to some people in the future? Because that's what I have a difficult time wrapping my mind around. Like, I guess, you know, I've seen people buy and sell digital assets that are completely centralized and not permissionless at all um, for large sums of money. But like, is this going to be like, do you see this like being a prized possession? like to like the deepest level, like something that is worth a house, like that kind of level of store of value. Like, I'm just kind of curious, like what is the end game in your mind for these type of assets? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we want to see assets traded, which are worth 10 cents. Uh, we, we think that there is absolutely the potential for assets to go for hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Uh, we've already had dozen chain cards, uh, you know, traded auction for more than 60 grand US. Um, we've had cards trade between players in the range of 35 grand US. Um, and we think that that will grow and that will change as new assets are introduced. Uh, we think that just as we see like physical cards and game items um, for, for Magic the Gathering have gone for hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, we think that there's a lot of value that players and people generally will feel, uh, you know, whether that's showing off their assets or owning something very rare or being able to display to users. And we think that in a lot of ways, digital assets where if, if, if all that you care about uh, for these assets is its scarcity and its ability to display your status to other people, we think digital assets actually let you do that significantly better than physical assets, right? Physical assets, you know, you, you have to keep it in a case somewhere or in a bank vault. It has to be perfectly sort of climate controlled and looked after in a particular way, which means you can never get it out to show anyone that you have it. Uh, it's not visible at all. Uh, it's not, so you can't, you know, uh, share it with your friends. There's no outside of a, a legal contract, et cetera. Um, and there's no way for you all to look at it at the same time. Uh, and you, you just don't have all the displayability options that you can with a digital asset, right? And so we think that not only can digital assets uh, 
go for that much money. We think that there's in the future the potential for them to go for even more. Right? We think that obviously that depends on the way that they've been designed and what they represent to people and groups of people. Uh, but in, they provide, uh, essentially, we think they provide substantially more utility in a lot of areas than physical assets, which have already gone for really large sums of money. So that brings up an interesting question. So if I wanted to get my hands on some of the best Hearthstone cards uh, and Hearthstone legendaries, you know, spanned um, the whole spectrum of being good or bad cards. There were some legendaries that people would just never, ever play and some legendary cards that were in everybody's deck, no matter what kind of deck. Uh, And if I, if you really wanted to get your hands on one of these cards, it really wasn't that hard because you had this minting mechanism where you could buy, you know, like 20 packs. And if the card that you wanted didn't show up in those packs, well, then you could turn those cards that you got from those packs into uh, what was called dust, which once you collect enough dust, you could mint whatever card you want, which means that these most legendary cards aren't scarce because they're mintable. And so you just pay more money and then more cards are minted. And so my question to, to you is what does the distribution of rare cards look like? Is it kind of a, a power law uh, distribution, a Pareto distribution where like the most and mm-hmm. best cards are like really, really scarce. Like there's only 10 of them. Like what's that, what's that uh, curve of scarcity look like? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, so we should firstly, we have a couple of one-off cards, uh, which we call mythic cards, which are just one one of them are available. And essentially, they're not playable in tournament play. They're not sort of there for competitive game. They're basically a mini game within the game, right? So they're an experience for both players, which we wanted to make, you know, if you play against one of them, you're going to remember that forever, right? It was our kind of design decision uh, while doing them. And you're going to lose, right? The rest of our cards, uh, probably not quite, say, uh, no, no, no. So often they, they... completely redo both players' decks or mm, completely double them crazy. or change the rules of the game. So, yeah, it's just a, it's a mini game for both players to engage with, right? Um, we didn't want to make it like an, an insta-win card. It's not very interesting and it wouldn't create sort of value uh, depth for those people. Um, the rest of the cards generally, so uh, we have legendaries, which are about sort of like 1% of the cards that we've made, uh, epics, which are about 5%, rares are about 25 and commons, which are the ones that have been left over. Right, uh, and we see that as a fairly uh, like uh, a realistic distribution model. Right, there is a lot of scarcity to the top level cards. Right, in the game. Right, so nothing quite scarce. There's only ten copies of them. I think we're talking about you know thousands at, at at their most scarce. Right, but obviously for a game which has a million players, if there are only two thousand of a particular type of card, that's going to create a lot of competition demand for those cards. Right, um, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's a good thing because obviously it promotes the collectability and value of those assets. Uh, it's potentially a bad thing if it impacts the balance of the game, right? Uh, one of the nice things that we have on our side here is we can actually use economic incentives to solve some of these problems, right? Uh, in, in the circumstances where, for instance, uh, there's one, uh, one card which is really dominant uh, and it's really highly valued and another card which might be of the same scarcity but is not used in any competitive decks or is not valued by the community, and it's priced really low, uh, what you've essentially created there is economic incentive to find a deck which incorporates that card into it uh, and to invent something which can give that card value, right? Because if you're able to invent a really powerful way of interacting with the game, the really low valued card, right? And you're able to invest in that card essentially uh, by buying a lot of them, uh, you potentially have created a really powerful economic incentive for people to innovate uh, on the meta, right? Uh, and that's not an incentive which is really possible in games without trading. Uh, and so, why, some of the reasons why they have to rely on a, on a sort of a, a fully top-down distribution model is because you're either winning or you're not. Whereas in our games, we think there's a chance for players to be able to, uh, to use economic incentives to find different combinations of things which work. Okay, so with the whole scarcity built into the Gosling Train system, you guys have solved the the issue of not being able to print more cards than than what would be scarce. But at the same time, uh, the interface for playing these games also is going to be a centrally run server, right? And so, like, yep. what happens if you if we have this super rare card, the most rare card, and then it has, you know, 30 health and 30 attack, so it's really powerful, uh, and then you guys push an update and you change that to 3 attack and 3 health, and all of a sudden that loses all of the value. So there, there's no stopping that, right? Like, you guys will always be able to have that power? Yeah, so... Uh, well, uh, we should we should differentiate between now and always. I think 
Um, so I'll talk about right now first. So right now, absolutely, we have the power to change uh, what cards do in the game, right? Um, you know, and that's necessary for, for a number of like game development and you know, just, just generally structural reasons about us need to balance things. But what we do offer players at the moment is complete auditability, right? So all those properties are visible on chain, right? You can see it's saved in your card on chain. Okay, this card is meant to have 30 attack and 30 health, right? Uh, and they've, and we have the, a one-way switch on that, those properties on chain so that we can balance cards, et cetera. But once a card is tradable, we would lock in its properties and say, okay, uh, that's uh, locked in for now, right? For most of the cards, some of them, there's a bit of wiggle room, right? Um, and what that essentially lets players do is that when they're making purchasing decisions, uh, they're informed about the stats, right? Uh, we're not overly zealous about this. Uh, we have a core set, which is able to be balanced while still being tradable. Part of that's because as we print new cards, if we really wanted to, to rebalance things, it's still possible for us to do that. Um, but what we've tried to offer to players is, at the moment, right, while obviously we can change what the cards do if they're played on a centralized server, uh, if, you, if we do it, you will know about it and you'll be able to point at the blockchain, which is there forever and say, hey, this is not the card that, that was purchased. And then it essentially becomes a massive reputational risk for us, uh, which gives players some economic guarantees that we wouldn't compromise our reputation or the value of future card sales by doing something like that. Right? So that's, that's the now. Um, in the future, things might, might look completely different, right? So in the future, we could totally see a world where people would be spinning up their own servers, et cetera, to play Gods Unchained on. And so if we decide to change the game's rules, uh, who's to say there couldn't be a Gods Unchained classic uh, running on peer-to-peer -peer servers between people. Uh, we want to explore all sorts of things uh, related to that, but obviously uh, you can't optimize for that before you have something that people want to use in the first place. Last last question for me is, what do you think it's going to take to make Gods Unchained something that is appealing to someone who would play a similar game through a centralized server, like the one that David was talking about earlier? Um, so, I mean, firstly, I think we have to fix the UX considerations that I mentioned earlier, right? I think you can have a really attractive product in theory, uh, a really nice sort of compelling set of, um, you know, uh, narratives that people can get behind and like, I really want to participate in that ecosystem. Uh, and that's fantastic, but it won't do anything like in, in the games industry, uh, retention and engagement are key, right? Uh, and as you're building in your users, you're not gonna be able to see a game grow without having solved those challenges first, right? So that's the number one step. Uh, beyond there, what we think is important is once we have kind of user experience parity, we then want to go really, really hard to players and say, using the play to earn systems that we've set up, using the ownership and tradability, and as well as uh, sort of hooking players into the crypto ecosystem more broadly to enable them to like fully appreciate the value of their cards, et cetera. Uh, we think that players, again, we want to do a really hard uh, sort of Trojan horsey sell to them on, this is all of the benefits of decentralization. These are all the benefits of trading. Uh, and we think that trading, one of the reasons we pick trading card games here is we think there's such a direct parallel between here is what you are getting in Hearthstone, right? And you are getting a bad deal. Like you are paying for these cards and all that money is dead money and you are getting a, a really bad deal versus over in Godzilla Chain, it's pretty easy to understand. If I'm paying for these cards, I can sell them later. Uh, we think that's, a, that's a, a narrative which users will get. So I have some questions I want to burn through really quickly, and, and I don't think their answer will, will take very long. One of them is, uh, does Gods Unchained Immutable always plan on keeping the cards being denominated in ETH? Or are we thinking about maybe using DAI in the future? Um, so I, I think we, we definitely never say never. Uh, we're, we're, we're exploring all sorts of stablecoin pricing options, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to make sure that what we do uh, neatly and nicely balances how easy it is for users to interact with our ecosystem uh, with wanting to have a stable price of things. Uh, we had during our first season, the fluctuation of ETH uh, be a challenge both for our accounting teams uh, and also for our players because it creates arbitrage opportunities with blue board at different prices. Um, we think that's a problem right now. Obviously, as ETH becomes a more accepted standard of money, et cetera, uh, that may become less of a problem in the future. And so uh, we'd say at the moment, product by product, season by season, and uh, let's work out what will give us the best of, best of what we want for our users. And is there a release date for a mobile app? Uh, there's not a release date. Um, it's certainly a priority for us internally. Uh, I think if you want to have a massive trading card game that takes on Hearthstone, uh, you have to be on mobile um, and we, we will go there. Uh, we obviously want to make sure that we also have the infrastructure set up on mobile uh, to support us to actually offer a blockchain game there. Um, we, we're doing a lot of work on that regard. But we are, we are actively working on, on the development of a mobile version. Uh, and while I'm not 
uh, brave enough to commit to release dates. Um, I trust that the listeners will, will know that it's uh, that our incentives and theirs are very clearly aligned in this area. And then last lightning question. Uh, so uh, you are responsible for saving millions and millions of dollars of gas costs. Uh, are you going to document and promote this technique for others to use? And uh, will you come to Ethereum conferences to spread the use of these techniques in libraries? Absolutely. Um, actually, the first version of this technique, uh, I gave a talk on at EdCon in Sydney this year. Uh, and so we will, I think there are a bunch of things, whether they're, this technique in particular is like something which is really useful for optimizing the minting of NFT assets, right? But there are other things that we're working on in a much more general sense, which we think that we absolutely want to get out to the community as come and integrate with this. We can, we have dealt with these problems. We have solved them. Uh, and whether that's tooling, whether that's talks, uh, we definitely want to participate uh, in the Ethereum system. Uh, we've been a bit heads down and building for the last year uh, and we're in Sydney, obviously. So uh, we're a long way away. Uh, but we want to ensure that all of the knowledge that we have is radiated and disseminated to the Ethereum ecosystem, which has given us so much knowledge and experience in return. Uh, it's one of the things that we uh, really love about the Ethereum community is uh, the availability and openness of discussion, developers and tooling, which help people make better products. Alex, thanks so much for coming on to POV Crypto. If you have a request of our listeners, what would it be? Download Goes Unchained, try it out. Um, it's su super easy to see how, why both people like these styles of, style of games and also how directly and, uh, and how easily crypto can be integrated into, into games of, into games which include in-game assets. Uh, in-game assets are an enormous industry. They touch the lives of billions of people every single day. And we think there is a, re a, a real opportunity for crypto to make uh, inroads towards those people all over the world uh, and give them really what they should be getting in the first place. Mm, one last question. When social gaming? When can people play me? Um, this, again, is a massive channel priority. I think we're, we'll be rolling out a friends uh, and chat system across. We're building something which will work across all of our immutable products, as well as something which will hook directly into Guns Unchained for uh, 1v1 matches. Uh, obviously, uh, it's very important to us. We have a, a $500,000 world tournament coming up, uh, which will mean that we need to support an esports scene. An esports scene means you need to support tournaments. Tournaments mean you need to support one-on-one -on -one games. One-on-one uh, -on -one games means that you need a friends and chat system. Mm -hmm. So that's the mini roadmap uh, for us to get there. Uh, we care a lot about getting there as quickly as possible. Awesome. Alex, thanks for coming on. You guys can follow Gods Unchained at Twitter, on Twitter at Gods Unchained, exactly how you would expect it to be spelled. Uh, Alex, do you have a Twitter that you want to be pointed to? Uh, not at the moment. Uh, everyone, please follow Gods Unchained. All our updates will be there. Cool. Awesome. All right, guys, sign up for Gods Unchained. When social gaming arrives, you can play me. My username is my Twitter handle. So Alex, thanks for coming on to POV. We really appreciate your time. Thanks very much for having me. You can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me on, both on Twitter and my medium at Trustless State and in the future playing Gods Unchained. Christian. You guys can follow me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Make sure to follow everything that we're doing online. Uh, make sure to rate and review the podcast. Again, a lot of people giving us shout outs. Only place where you get constructive and hard questions for Ethereum devs as well as uh, as well as uh, tough questions for Bitcoiners. So uh, check out POV Crypto. Thanks, Alex.